Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about both Bullet Train and Day Shift and I'm joined by two guests for this one. I'm joined by uh, action movie correspondent Daniel Lima. Daniel, what's going on? Pleasure to be here. And he just finished a binge of uh, Thomas Tank Tank Engine. It's Fred Cobb. Fred, what's going on? I do actually like to think of myself as the train correspondent on this podcast now, <laughs> considering that Prague got demolished by a train as well. And I guess oh. this one, Kyoto was the one that got destroyed. So if you, ever, if you ever want to do uh, a throwback to Snowpiercer or the taking <laughs> of Pelham 123, I'm your guy. Yeah, and you did Death on the you did Death on the Nile, which isn't a train movie, but it's you know similar idea and a co- cousin of these kind of movies, given the Agatha Christie of it all. I'm um, telling you, this man, Fred, he's no Diesel. <laughs> no diesel. Um, there's, there, I, I, I could not tell you the last time I thought about Thomas the Tank Engine before seeing this movie. It was a very random reference, but um, I've never uh, seen it. Never. Oh, seen I mean, it. I'm pretty sure that was a big part of my life, my my media consumption, like pre age six or something like that. Um, but Bullet Train is the new. Oh, I guess you guys are both both also kind of the David Leach correspondents because he did Hobbs and Shaw with me. Um, but uh, and oh, that's right. Yeah, it's all yeah. coming together. It's all coming together. Much unlike this movie. Sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. Spoilers. I think I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but it, it's directed by David Leach. Uh, is this uh, his follow-up to Hobbs and Shaw and, and Atomic Blonde? Stars Brad Pitt as in his follow-up to uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Though I guess he had a he had a cameo in uh, uh, The Lost City earlier this year, and uh, also stars among other people: Joey King, Aaron Taylor Johnson, Brian Tyree Henry, Andrew Koji, Hiroka Sonata, Michael Shannon, and uh, Sandra Bullock in like a. Kind of an odd the way they present her, but we we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, Brad Pitt plays an assassin. His code name is Ladybug. He um, he's getting on a train to pull a job for uh, another assassin that had to drop out. His handler is voiced by Sandra Bullock, and he his his job is simple. It's just to grab a suitcase and get off the train. But it doesn't go that easy. There are a bunch of other assassins on there with like very conflicting uh, interests who are on there for different reasons. Uh, one of them is just trying to avenge an attack that's been made on his son. Then there's these other two twins slash mobsters slash assassins uh, played by Brian Tyree Henry and Aaron Taylor Johnson named uh, Lemon and Tangerine, respectively. They're they're protecting the uh, son of another mobster, but also the suitcase of money. And uh, a lot of other people pop up and make Brad Pitt's... I'm just going to call him Brad Pitt. I don't really want to call him Ladybug, guys. Um, and they, they, they pop up and make Brad Pitt's uh, job a lot harder. And everyone just kind of, you know, uh, jumps in and uh, does their own thing. I guess, Daniel, I want to start with you on this. Because, uh, I mean, you were very excited for this movie. You put in the request a long time ago to talk about it. And I think you, you, have, a, you, have, a, you have a conflicted relationship with some of David Leach's past work. But I think you at least respect his action chops. And you, you kind of liked a lot of the people involved in this and the cast and the concept and all that. And you're pretty excited. And it's safe to say, I think you were a little let down based on what I know about your take so far, because I did read your, read your letterbox review. I don't always do that before I do these. And I want to know, it seems like you place a lot of blame for what you think went wrong with this movie at the feet of its director. And hoping you can expound on that a little bit and say why you were disappointed in this movie. Yeah, so um, David Leach, of course, uh, has been a stuntman for most of his career. She say um, he was Brad Smith. Uh, excuse me. We should say he was Brad Pitt's stuntman for a while. Yeah, he was his double. Um, I, I, I can't name his specific credits as like a second unit director as a stuntman, but he's done a lot. His real big break, though, was 
as a uncredited co-director of John Wick. And from there, you know, he starts up 87 North Productions and, uh, you know, starts pumping out movies. Um, you know, he's had his career where he's gone and direct the things he's directed, directed um, Atomic Blonde, uh, Hobbs and Shaw, Deadpool 2. You know, he's also produced like Kate, Nobody. And what I've what I've come to learn from his work is as much as I respect his ability to handle action, I've always been kind of let down when he steps behind the camera as a director. I rewatched Atomic Blonde recently, and while the story made more- And you like Hobbs and Shaw, though? I didn't even like it, but I thought you did. Hobbs and Shaw I do like, although I wonder after rewatching Atomic Blonde if it would hold up to a rewatch. Um, Atomic Blonde, you know, while it's, you know, I think generally considered his best work as a solo director, rewatching it, I'm like, it's it's got, it's very juvenile. It believes itself to be cleverer than it is with all its plot machinations. They amount to nothing, no real character work. And you're honestly, I spent the entire time just kind of watching, watching images on a screen versus like experiencing a story outside of the action. Um, Deadpool 2, while I like it more than the first film, uh, I think it has actually good action, which these days in superhero movies is hard to come by. Again, not really feeling it. Hobbs and Shaw did quite like actually, but I wonder how much of that is down to him and how much of that is down to uh, just the nature of that franchise. You know, I feel like it might be a case where being beholden to the studio actually kind of improved it. Do you guys remember, actually, I re-listened to our episode on that. Do you remember that moment in the plane where like uh, Vanessa Kirby's asleep and The Rock and Jason Statham are talking over her sleeping body and like The Rock's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have sex with your sister. And like, it's just an awful, awful scene on so many levels. But like, I think that kind of attempt at sophomoric humor is sort of emblematic of like my issues with David Leach as a director he keeps on going for comedy that's not funny um he doesn't really know how to handle let me ask you though where does that when can you attribute that to the writer and when can you attribute that to the director if you're talking about like a yeah that's it's one of those things where like all these movies have different writers but the one thing connecting Mm -hmm. all of them is him as a director and i think that Mm -hmm. continues on sadly with bullet train i think that in all of the movies he's directed normally i would say oh it must be down to the writer but i think what attracts him to these projects is this brand of humor, this brand of comedy. Uh, I actually did start reading the book bullet train before, after I'd seen the movie the first time I started reading the book, I got 50 pages in, I tapped out. This book is terrible. Uh, And a lot of the flaws that I originally attributed to the movie itself, I find they're actually there in the, in the book. And I think that might actually be what attracted him to the project in the first place. Fred, a couple weeks ago, we talked about The Gray Man. It was a movie that I was pretty disappointed by. And I was like, oh, like, hey, maybe you should come for Bullet Train. That one looks really good. Uh, we'll be able to, like, compare, like, what a good action movie is to, you know, uh, to what whatever The Gray Man was. And I think I, I think you're a little high. I th- I'm probably somewhere in, the, in between you two guys on Bullet Train. But, like, I, I think you, you, you liked it more than me. And I'm wondering, like... Not, not, not necessarily telling you to compare and contrast these two movies, but like, why do you think? Because anyone that saw both and listened to both episodes, like they, they would, uh, they would kind of know where they would already know where we thought Gray Man fell short. So I want to know, like, where you think this one like really worked for you the most, and uh, um, just overall, whether it be with like the action part of this, the comedy part of it, or just the performances overall. Like, what, what, what do you really think clicked? 
Yeah, there are a couple of different reasons, I think, for uh, why this ultimately worked a little better than the gray man for me. Uh, for starters, one thing that I really emphasized in our discussion about the gray man was that it kind of bothers me when action movies feel the need to throw a whole bunch of different locations at us just for the sake of showing them off. And Bullet Train is the exact opposite, where you primarily have one single set. And obviously, you're going to the different compartments and you're trying to show off the train. But ultimately, it's fairly simple in the sense that you have all of the characters in one location. And with minor variances, they're all after the same thing, which is to say a briefcase filled with money. Mm. <laughs> um, and I appreciate uh, that kind of simplicity when it comes to action movies, because it kind of allows you to throw a whole bunch of characters at your premise as opposed to doing a bunch of plot work uh, that ultimately results in none of the characters really getting to stand out. Which brings me to my second point, because The Grey Man also had a major star in Ryan Gosling, and I thought he was utterly wasted on that movie because he never really got to define himself uh, beyond conventional action hero uh, who's betrayed by his organization and then has to go rogue. And we've seen that so many times that there's no real novelty to that anymore. And I think there's something really interesting about Bullet Train in the sense that the summer started off with Top Gun Maverick, which is obviously starring Tom Cruise, which kind of triggered a major discussion about um, whether we really have any big movie stars left that can attract an audience just based on their popularity, their charisma. And now we're kind of ending the cinematic summer with a Brad Pitt movie. And obviously it's not nearly as much of a box office success but I still think it's kind of interesting because he was a big reason for why the movie really worked for me. Just the fact that he was doing something that uh, he also did very well on The Lost City already, where he just kind of embraces his more humorous side. And now that he's won his Oscar in uh, what I know was Daniel's favorite movie of 2019, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> Had to be reminded of that one, right? Um, yeah. I think he's still really good at this sort of stuff. And... Again, people like Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Leo DiCaprio. Uh, it used to be Will Smith up until a certain point, but not anymore, obviously, for reasons that tie back to his diminishing box office popularity and the fact that he, well, obviously slapped the shit off Chris Rock at the beginning of the year. Um, he has kind of diminished uh, his own profile in that sense. But I think there is a very short list of these kind of actors left. And Brad Pitt is decidedly still one of them. And I just think his passion really kind of showed through for me and was a big reason for why I ultimately still enjoyed Bullet Train. Well, I think, so I'm, I'm of two minds on it. And like, I do think you can like have, enjoy a movie because it looks like the actors are enjoying themselves. And I, and that, that can be contagious to a certain extent. And I agree with that. That's part of why I didn't mind sitting through Bullet Train. Because uh, I, I was just like, I'm, I'm, enjoying, I'm enjoying the fact that Brad Pitt is having a fun time. And it seemed nice. But just because he was having fun doesn't mean I think he was funny necessarily. And it's watchable just to see him being chill and, and getting to interact with all these people and doing a different kind of movie for what we've seen him maybe do recently. Um, though it's not even the first time he's played a hitman. So it's whatever. But like, um, I enjoyed that. But like, in, I think a lot of the criticism criticism of the movie is, has also been that like, oh, it's, it's and I, I, I'll say I'm not, I, I don't find a lot of the sophomore humor that doesn't work for Daniel to be as objectionable as some people maybe do. I like, I really like Deadpool too. But like, 
it just it just didn't make me laugh this time around. Uh, there was, and it's not even like, oh man, that that joke was eye rollingly bad or anything like that necessarily at any one point. It's just like, oh, they're going for it, but that didn't that just didn't get a laugh out of me for whatever reason. A lot of this just like it just kind of falls flat. I mean, I, I laughed some, but like just nowhere. It just had, their their jokes had nowhere near the hit rate for me as much as I they wanted to, and that's where I think a lot of the value of this movie um, should have come from. And I think a lot of what Brad Pitt is doing is stuff that I was just like, it didn't. It didn't also feel particularly original. Um, I mean, first of all, there's the way he talks a lot um, with this. What he keeps talking about his therapist and how he's getting enlightened and all this stuff. And it didn't do a ton for me. And on top of that, there's all this talk about him being lucky the whole movie. And that 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 that's where some of the cameos, which we can talk about and how effective they are. That's what another thing that like kind of bothered. I don't know if I want to say it bothered me, but it just it made my mind wonder about all the connections that these different actors have for one reason or another. So then I think about how Leach did Deadpool 2. And that had Zazie Beats in it. And she played Domino. And Domino's whole thing is that she gets lucky the whole entire time. And then I'm thinking like, wow, that, so that makes me feel like they're just kind of like recycling something that they've already done in another movie besides that. Um, I already thought about how like there, there's this whole thing with the Lost City and how three those, the, Brad Pitt, Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum, all in this one too. Um, I mean, Brian, I mean, Brian Tyree, I mean, and then I even went down in my head. I was like, oh yeah, Brian Tyree Henry is in a field street could talk and Brad Pitt produced, produced that. It's like he just got all of his friends together. And it's like, there's something to be said for that. But at the same time, like my mind started wondering a little bit because I didn't find a lot of the other stuff on the screen as engaging, you know? So like, and I, and I, and I, I just, just to kind of give my overall take on the movie too. Like I said, I'm between you guys. It's like, I did think some of this action is really good. I particularly did enjoy Brian Tyree Henry and Aaron Taylor Johnson. I got a kick out of the fact that like, usually it's like the, it's usually it's the black, act, the black actors from London that come over and just like take the parts from the African-American actors. And it was kind of funny to see one of them, like get, they, they just cast an American, a black American actor. This is, to just go do this this is a revenge for Daniel Kaluuya. I enjoyed thinking about that. And cause I, I, those two, I probably enjoyed more than anyone else in the movie. So there is stuff in it that I, I had fun with and I enjoyed. It's just like, I think it was going to be going for being like way more of a comedy than I even expected going in. And I just didn't laugh as much as I wanted to. I mean, like, I mean, was there, I don't know. Was there, was, was, did any of the humor work for you, Daniel? Okay. Well, so I know what this movie is going for. This movie is going for that kind of post Tarantino, really dialogue, heavy, talky, self-aware crime comedy sort of thing like we've seen this sort of thing before which i think gets to just so much of the action and the comedy like you said it's all shit that i've seen done before and funnier you know you how much are the how many jokes end up being like oh they're going on a non sequitur about like thomas the tank engine or something which granted again is in the novel but again the novel is bad then you have like these, like they're constantly like grown men saying words like, oh, shit balls, fuck me sideways. Like, I mean, that's it, it, the vulgarity isn't funny to me. I'm not 12 years old. Beyond that, like uh, so often the action is interrupted uh, and we can talk a little bit more on the action because I got some shit to say there. But like so much, so many uh, action set pieces are like interrupted, like they interrupt the flow of the action in order to make those jokes, which if they were funny it'd be one thing but if the joke ends up always being like oh and now they have to like pretend that they're not actually fighting but then they have to get back to the fight and then pretend that they're not actually fighting like it it, it, it's the same thing over and over and over again there's no witty lines really to be had i will admit there are exactly two lines that got a laugh out of me the first time i saw it at one point, Brian Tyree Henry says, I'm always captivated by white girl tears. That made me laugh. <laughs> and then there's a when uh, uh, 
Brad Pitt like poisons um, um, Jazzy Beats' yeah. character with her own poison and she doesn't have another antidote. And she he's like, what, what you got to be prepared. I'm sorry, I'm mansplaining. That made me laugh. And those are two moments out of this is it's leaning so hard into the comedy for like almost two and a half hours and nothing really works. I've seen this twice. The first time in a packed preview crowd. So people showed up wanting to see this movie. They, they knew that it was coming out in a preview and they went to see it and it was dead. It really? was a dead audience. Like people were not laughing. The laughs, the jokes that got the most chuckles out of people were the ones that were in the trailer um it was yeah it was this is a movie that it just it just does as a comedy does not work and it just goes to a lot of the same the same well of humor that as you pointed out that david leach goes to constantly through all of his movies even atomic blonde fred fred you didn't see it till the winds after it came out i'm guessing you probably probably had a more empty theater anyway so it's harder to gauge how they were reacting to it no i actually had a pretty good crowd and uh, okay. i see i actually had a very different experience where yeah, it mm. wasn't the full showing. I would say maybe 40, 50% of the seats were filled, which is pretty, pretty good for a Wednesday evening, I would say. Um, yeah. And I think people were into it and I actually had a pretty good time with the humor as well. And maybe I'm a little bit more juvenile in that sense. And I will also admit <laughs> that I haven't seen a lot of David Leach's other movies recently. I haven't seen Deadpool two in years. Actually, I think I haven't seen it since it came out uh, whenever that was 2017, 2018. Um, it was summer, summer 2018. Yeah. And I don't know, like Logan and I had a really good time with it and we, we got a pretty good amount of laughs out of it. I, I will say some of the jokes were a bit repetitive. I could have probably uh, done with some uh, fewer Thomas the Tank Engine jokes. That joke was kind of overdone. I also don't necessarily need to see the boom slang every five minutes to remind me that it's still there. I saw that point in your review. That was a good point. Yeah, show me that it escaped once, and then when it shows back up again 30 minutes later, we know, okay, it escaped. Like, it was somewhere in the train. Oh, shit, it's still around. Like, you don't need to remind me that that is something that still needs to be paid off. Yeah. So, yeah, I will say there were some things in there where that probably could have been done more elegantly. But I don't know. Like, I think Brad Pitt is really enjoyable in this. I also got a great laugh out of the scene where uh, he and Aaron Taylor Johnson's character are on the platform uh, with the henchmen, and they have to show them the briefcase. <laughs> And then he's like, I don't even have the combination for this thing. And then he like, <laughs> rolls the thing and the thing opens up and obviously there's no money in there. I got a good, got a good laugh in my theater. I really don't like doing pods with you uh, about comedies. And I don't really think we have done one before, except maybe Jojo Rabbit, which I don't even really see as a comedy because I think there are some very serious undertones in that one. Because humor is so subjective, right? right. Like if you're going to ask me, why did you think this movie was funny? Can't really. Can't, it's hard to explain why something makes. Yeah, it's hard to explain why something makes you laugh and why something doesn't. Yeah, but but actually, you did point out something in there that I think gets to a larger problem. Um, like I said, this so much of this relies on this the crisscrossing of these different characters who all have different motivations, reasons for being on that train, and the script is meant to sort of get a lot of tension, comedic and otherwise out of these crisscrossing narratives. But I think, again, this is a case where the movie constantly uh, shoots itself in the foot and it goes just down to the filmmaking. Like, why show the boomsling 10 different times before it finally shows up? It's like check off a Chekhov's gun that honestly, the moment you see, like in the very first scene, you see a news report about a boomsling going missing and you're like, oh, well, that's going to show up. Like, you know, because I've seen movies before, but they still emphasize it over a dozen different shots before it actually shows up. 
um, and actually does something, I should say, that matters to the narrative. You get like constantly going back. Uh, you know, the movie is almost in a non-chronological order where it's shifting backwards in time to like give you a flashback, to give you additional context to the scene that you're watching. Normally for comedic effect, but they again, they do it so often that it breaks up the rhythm of the piece that you're watching. And so you can never really fully buy into the narrative of what you're watching. You're just waiting for the next shift in time in order to get there's like a toward the end there's like a thing with a water bottle that like it shifts back for like it's not even it's i don't even know what the point is is it for a joke because it's not funny it's not like the story of the water bottle is narratively interesting it's not comedically interesting like it why do it it's just for the sake of doing it it's following the same footsteps of these kind of like tarantino clones that came out in the 90s but it's been 30 years and it's clear that the dude has an appreciation for that model. I mean, he actually does somewhat do the same thing atomic blonde and to the same effect, in my opinion, like it just bounces around in this way that like means that nothing ever really sticks. For right, me. You said we hadn't done a comedy two pod two podcasts ago. We did the unbearable way to massive town. I don't know if you consider that a comedy, um, but I, I don't think that was one. I don't know if it was as funny as I wanted it to be. Like, I like, I mean, I, though, I think we both enjoyed that movie still. Um, and then, and then when I, when I was scrolling, I, I scrolled back to see if there are any other comedies Fred and I did. And I was like, well, I was like, oh man, like, I, then I got down to like exactly a hundred episodes ago from now that that was the podcast Daniel and I did on Antebellum and the fat man. So, you know, this podcast contains multitudes, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, it's just like this movie, all these crisscrossing different narratives, um, but, uh, we already, I mean, we mentioned a little bit about, or Daniel mentioned a little bit how they're cutting back and forth. I mean, I'm curious cause you were talking about how you like the simpler story in the action movies. And I, that's something I, I talked a lot about when we did like the Top Gun, I did the Top Gun Maverick podcast. Like I really respected like how, well, as much as I like the Mission Impossible movies, which is also one we've talked about before. And maybe I made this point a little bit on the Grand Man podcast, but like, I like when things are simple um in in action movies and they find a way to do that which top gun maverick did and i like the mission impossible movies but like they do a little bit of that jumping around too and to a certain extent and so i'm wondering beyond just the fact that they they kept us on this train what did you actually think of the story i mean daniel as the now sometime editor of this podcast made the point that i need to stop rambling so much at the beginning and not give a whole synopsis to the movie when people probably already listen to it so that's what i was trying to do at the beginning i didn't get too much into the story yet but i'm wondering did this story work for you? Because, I mean, it jumps around a little bit when it gets off the train to kind of fill in the gap. So it has a, a different kind of narrative structure that doesn't seem like it worked for Daniel as much. So I'm wondering, what did you ultimately think of how this came together when they brought in all these different characters and filled in their backstories to kind of try and make everything converge into one? Yeah, that's really the key, I think. You need to buy into this narrative structure. And because you have a fairly simple plot again, like I said, I think you almost need uh, the character histories at some point to fill in the blanks. Mm -hmm. Um, and the movie that I came back to, or I guess the book, I should really say that I came back to over and over again is Murder on the Orient Express, which is mm. incidentally also about a train full of killers, right. except that you don't know that they're all killers until the end and Poro reveals that they're hiding uh, to the it, audience. Yeah. Um, they're hiding it. Yeah. I mean, these people are very brazen and blatant about the fact, obviously, that they're uh, perfectly willing to kill people to get what they want. Uh, but I think there's kind of a similar pattern there. And I mean, I joked about being the train correspondent earlier, but I think a lot of these train movies have a very similar idea where it's ultimately about the backstories of the characters on the train, as opposed to the events taking place on the train itself. Hmm. Um, and Murder of the Orient Express is actually an interesting comparison in that sense as well, because Poirot being a detective, he kind of has to figure out what happened previously 
it's not even so much about like what is still happening in the present timeline, but he has to figure out, okay, what happened like back then, back at the beginning before the dead body showed up. And obviously this isn't a murder mystery, but I still think because you have that confined setting and ultimately the whole idea here is that you have a bunch of people on the train, the train is going from point A to point B and things are happening on that train while they're on that journey. Uh, and obviously your options are limited at that point for what you can really do with that plot. So you do have to insert some backstory and if you get the comedy of it, if you get a laugh out of it, then it's going to work for you because at that point, it's not even so much about the plot anymore. So yeah, if the humor falls flat, then obviously you're not going to have a great time with any of this. Um, but like I said, I got a good amount of laughs out of it whenever they did some of those flashbacks. I appreciated the fact that the Mexican killer, for example, the wolf, you get this like two minute, three minute backstory to him and then he gets killed by Brad Pitt right away. Like, I think that's funny. To me, that's great because it's a red herring because you're expecting him to play a major role in this and he's dead right away. And, you know, like things like that kind of kept me off balance. The uh, the wolf was played by Bad Bunny. And I think that played into my expectations, too, a little bit, because there I don't know if you, you remember this, Daniel, but at some point, like in the last like six months, th there was talk about how Sony loved his performance in this so much that they like invited him for a meeting and said, we'll let you play like any person in the Spider-Man universe you want to play in a movie. And I was like, oh, man, this guy's going to. So he like and he picked he picked a wrestler from like three issues in like 2004. <laughs> like he just wanted to do a wrestling movie. Good for him. Yeah, no, Bad Bunny is like the I think he's But because like of that, I thought he was going to be a bigger part of the movie. So I'm just saying it. Up exactly. It was like stunt casting. Yeah, yeah. He was the like arguably like currently like the biggest star in this cast. Like any Latina woman that you've ever met would probably kill her entire family to smell his feet. Like he is that <laughs> yeah. big. Yeah, he is that big. Uh, going back to what Fred was saying uh, about how like the backstories are kind of important because you have such a limited setting, I would actually argue the opposite. I would argue that for something like this, because it's not a murder mystery like Poirot, you should be spending as much time as you can on that train watching these characters bounce off each other because of the limited setting. Uh, I'm trying to think of an example, but like, uh, I, hell, You've got, I think, the Andromeda Strain, um, which was a plague movie on a train. You've got Train to Busan. You've got all these different movies that really utilize the setting, play it for its claustrophobic nature. And I find that those were all more effective than in this one. And yes, of course, like the fact that I'm, I did not find this movie funny, like pretty much at all, is going to hurt it. But at the very least, you could have these sort of dense character interactions that I actually do love. I love a chamber piece movie and narrative, and it, it doesn't really ever get there for me. Well, I mean, it's, it's funny you mentioned Train to Busan, because I mean, I think I think that was my first thought when I, after I saw this was that like, I, I watched Train to Busan for like the first time like a year ago, and I, I, I really enjoyed it. And that movie I think is like probably like 20 minutes shorter than this one. And I thought did a better job of developing a lot of the characters. Uh, so I just, that's why that one like kind of stuck with me as like something that kind of like kind of did it better. I mean, obviously you have the whole, it's, it's even simpler in some ways and that it's just like, you know, it, it has less legwork to do to like, you know, convey its plot and that it's just, it's just a straight, we got to survive these zombies type of thing. But like, I, I appreciated how it introduced a lot of characters and I felt the geography of, I, I remember finding the geography of that train a little easier to follow here. Like I was like very preoccupied with that on the second viewing. It may, it reminded me a little bit of what's up doc and that like, apparently you can, you can really track all those rooms 
in WhatsApp doc, if you like really, really sit down and do it and it makes sense. And here I tried to do that on the second viewing. And I, I think it, I think it did track, but like, it took a lot of effort uh, to like make sure everything happened in the right order. But like, I, even if I wasn't as, as like with it, with respect to like feeling deep connections with all these characters as I wanted to, I, th- I think, I think some of the performances like still kind of got me through. And I, 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 I'm wondering, did, did any, did any of the performers do anything for you, Daniel, like that where you, that you could hold on to that a little bit or nothing, nothing really for, for you to write home about such that you couldn't even hold on to that. Yeah. It's one of those things where like, I think the material that they're dealing with um, mm-hmm. just is, it's just not strong enough for them to really make anything out of it. You know, you've got a lot of people that I really do like here in other roles, but here, like for example, Joey King. I actually am not too familiar with Joey King outside of her film earlier this year, The Princess on Hulu. And you made, I, you made the comment about Bad Bunny, and I think it really being the biggest star. I think it depends what demographic you're at. It's like she's like here to bring in a different demographic. She's like huge on the Netflix rom-coms and stuff. Exactly. And we'll have to get into like the cast, like that part of the casting, you know, in a little bit. But like um, Joey King, I saw in The Princess, you know, and that was her first starring role that I've seen her in. And she was brilliant in that. I thought she had a wonderful physicality. Oh. I actually she's on my list currently of best actress performances. She's in my top five for the year right now. I don't know if that'll hold up for this one or The Princess for The Princess. Obviously, <laughs> uh, honestly, that role. I'll admit, obviously, that which a movie that's like I'm pretty sure it was like really pan. Yeah. And, yeah. and here she is called the, her character is The Prince. And the Prince, um, yeah. but then you have like Brian Tyree Henry. I actually. He's really going for it. And I think out of all the actors, he's the most successful at playing the emotional part of this film. Uh, Brad Pitt is having fun. Uh, you know, he's having fun. But again, nothing he says is particularly funny. You know, I, I found Brian, uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson kind of annoying. Michael Shannon shows up at the end and he's just, you know, doing a Russian accent, whatever. Like, yeah, none of the performances really stuck out to me. Uh, and honestly, like the the worst part, and we can you know, I can, we can get Fred's take on the performances himself, but like, for me, like it ties into the action, the two actors who actually have a background in martial arts and action choreography are Harioku Sonata and Andrew Koji. And they get one fight scene that is like not even a real fight scene. And that goes into my disappointment in the action, which is probably for me, even bigger, an even bigger flaw than the comedy. Yeah. Just wasn't taken by anybody. Nobody's given a chance to really shine for me. Hmm. Well, yeah. So, I mean, like, I, I, I mean, I, I guess I was trying to make the point that like, look, I mean, I still enjoyed a lot of these people in isolation, even if I didn't really like super connect with any of the characters. I mean, I, you, you talked about Brad Pitt when we first started, Fred, but was there anyone else that you were uh, particularly entertained by or impressed with from a performance standpoint? I don't know. I mean, like, like Daniel was saying, I mean, the problem with Brian Tyree Henry is, again, like every time it seemed like his character was going to really get a breakthrough. He came back to the old jokes again about Thomas the Tank Engine. And I, I think that's kind of annoying when you have a good character like that with potential, when you kind of reduce him to just one single joke uh, for the most part. So that made me a little frustrated. I enjoy the fact that Sandra Bullock was in this. I don't think that she's done a lot over the past couple of years. And although it's mostly a voice performance, I really enjoyed the rapport she and Brad Pitt were having on the phone. It kind of gave me a good idea of... Um, what their history might be together and that they've been doing this for a long time and that she's getting kind of frustrated with the fact that he suddenly adopted a pacifist attitude. What did you think about her only being a voice performance for like a lot of the movie? It almost felt like they presented her showing up at the end as like, oh, surprise, we have Sandra Bullock. But it's like, that sounds like Sandra Bullock on the phone. Like it, I, I couldn't Maybe tell her, like, yeah. it was really necessary to like not actually just, I mean, I guess you don't need to like have her picture come on when she's on the phone, it, you know, like that's fine. But like, 
I don't know. It, it was fine. I, I, I kind of, I, I got a kick out of a little bit of their interactions, I guess, but like it was almost presented like it was a fun cameo pop-up at the end where like that I classify that differently from the other cameos in this movie. So it's also in the second trailer. I don't know why they did that. Oh. <laughs> really? Like they showed the end of the movie in the trailer. One thing I'll ask you then more specifically, Fred, uh, as opposed to broadly asking about the performances, well, I think you noted in your letterbox review that you actually like, you actually thought the cameos were executed fairly well. I mean, and you like compared that to like Marvel movies, I think, and how like maybe yep. those aren't those those don't necessarily work for you as much. What did you like about like kind of how they utilized it? How like here you have you know Zazie Beat showing up out of nowhere, you have uh, Channing Tatum showing up out of nowhere, Ryan Reynolds for a split second. What, what did you like about the way they handled those compared to like how other movies might handle celebrity cameos? Yeah, so the frustrating thing about the way cameos are done in the Marvel universe nowadays, and that's really the quintessence of where we see cameos nowadays is the fact that they're always a means to an end in the sense where you always suspect that they have an ulterior motive in in introducing those characters. Like, oh, they're going to get their own TV show next year. Oh, they're going to get their own movie two years down the road. Or or maybe they aren't and they're just testing the waters to see, oh, wonderful, uh, Harry Styles (laughs) showing up as Thanos' brother got a great reaction from the audience. So we're going to give him his own movie now. Um, And that's why it's gotten kind of frustrating because every time you see new characters in the Marvel movies that only show up for a few minutes, you always have to wonder, okay, are they just doing this uh, to gauge what the audience reaction is going to be? Uh, And what I liked about the cameos here is that they don't serve that kind of purpose. They're literally just there to get a laugh out of the audience in the sense that you don't necessarily expect Channing Tatum to suddenly show up on the train. Oh, we've heard about Carver being a total dickhead throughout this entire movie that... uh, he was the guy who was initially supposed to take Brad Pitt's job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't really hear much about him. And then all of a sudden we find out, oh, yeah, it's Ryan Reynolds. Of course it is, because that's the guy you would associate with that kind of personality. And I mean, it's a quick joke. It's a five second cameo, but it got a laugh out of my audience. And that's the only reason he's there, just to get that laugh. And I, again, I appreciate that there is a certain simplicity to that. You don't have to worry about the fact that, oh, now that laughed about Ryan Reynolds being in this movie, he's going to get his own spin-off movie, uh, Bullet Cruise or Bullet Plane in a couple of years. No, it's just there so people can enjoy him being there and because he's a recognizable guy. And I think there's something to be said for that. Yeah, I don't know. Did you, did you have any feelings about that, Daniel? Yeah, I, I didn't like him. Here's the thing. There's only <laughs> the, 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 um, the yeah. Ryan Reynolds one is actually my the best appearance by Ryan Reynolds in a movie that I've seen in a couple of years simply because he doesn't talk. And then you've got the uh, what's his name, the uh, Channing Tatum one, which is actually to be to me like pretty bad because it's like a, it's the, the entire joke of his character is like he's gay and wants to have sex with men. Um, that was I found kind of not funny and also retrograde, you know, so I wasn't a huge fan of that one. Um, and also, although, again, page 20 of the book is like a joke about, um, you know, a woman who turns out to be a man. So it's part of those it's baked into the source material also yeah not a huge fan of those cameos yeah i i, I would i would probably classify the zazie beats one a little differently because she had a more substantial scene and it's just, it's just like that was a surprise that popped up later though i think like it might have even been marketed a little more as her yeah. being in the movie she's in the trailer she's in the oh, she trailer is? okay yeah I, I didn't watch the trailer i didn't i don't think i watched the trailer that much but like yeah but like it's funny it's in the trailer but then they present it as like you know a surprise too but like i i did i did like how she popped up even if it did make me again let my mind wander again to like oh yeah she's a friend of leeches from this thing uh and then they have the 
and 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 then and and then she, she's also in Atlanta with Brian Tyree Henry. I just think about the connections again or whatever. But like, I mean, I I mean, I I, I guess I liked how um she popped up and uh you touched you, you touched before on Joey King. So before we move on from the performances, I I just want to say I I did really enjoy her too. I I don't think I'd ever actually seen her in anything. I just knew she was big from like all that Netflix rom com stuff. You you told me about the princess. I did not get around to watching it, and I I feel like I I feel like I took an unnecessary shot at the princess earlier because it actually has better reviews than this movie apparently, which I didn't realize. Did it? Um, say, that's good to hear because it is genuinely like a lot of fun okay good to know i, mean, I might go check that out in the next few weeks because as we d- discussed earlier it's, it might, might actually be a, a slow couple weeks after the recording of this podcast but like i mean i just it, it was kind of cool to see like someone like joey king who i and i hadn't seen the princess i just knew her as like this person that was like in those kissing booth movies that i never bothered watching and it's like oh wow like she's like really handling herself with a lot of confidence against like a lot of like very very experienced movie actors here and like i i, I actually did not know as i was watching if she was like british or not which i guess is a compliment with respect to her doing that accent because like i mean i obviously know brian tyree henry's not and i just like i i had no idea so like i mean i thought it wasn't really that distracting to have her doing to have her doing an accent and i thought she like handled it um fairly well all things considered she was apparently by the way in dark knight rises which i didn't realize she played the younger version of uh, marion cotillard's character oh getting so out of the pit nice see- that's nice yeah exactly right she like made that transition from like you know, child actress to like other stuff. Like I, I, I take that back. Like I had seen her in other things. I just hadn't seen her in anything since she'd been like an adult. I think she plays the daughter, like the, the younger daughter in like crazy stupid love or something like that too. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Like, which I guess was, looks like that was her credit right before dark Knight rises. So like, and I guess she was in white house down. Like she was like playing like the daughters of lots of people in lots of movies before she like, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, was, was able to like uh, break into like actually doing that stuff with those uh, kissing booth movies, which was, you know, big for her. Daniel, I guess the, the next thing I'd want to ask you then was like, uh, I think we touched on it. I, I You touched on it in your letterbox review. I don't know if you really touched on it yet, but I, beyond me mentioning, I know you did have some respect for Leach's, uh, you know, chops as an action director, but I, you, I know you're a little let down by the action in this movie. Uh, where did you think it kind of fell a little shorter, had any missed opportunities where it could have been better? Oh, man, this is actually probably the most disappointing part of the movie for me, because like I said, even though I've never really... Uh, you know, again, with the, I guess, possible exception of Hobbs and Shaw, I'm not returning to that one. Let's just make give him that one. But like, I haven't really liked most of Leach's work. Um, I've honestly come to kind of think of him as like the, the part of John Wick, that original film, that's probably like the least impressive post Wick. But I, I was at least hoping for like a, some decent action. And like, that's not really here. I mentioned that they keep on breaking up the rhythm for the comic moments, which just don't work for me. Um, but beyond that, it's just like the choreography is not there. It's nothing compared to the likes of even Deadpool 2. I can't believe I'm saying that. Um, and I think it comes down to <laughs> there's a red carpet interview where Brad Pitt they, somebody asked Brad Pitt, like, so did you do your stunts for this one? He's like, no, 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 no. Oh, I love me a stunt, man. I, don't, I try to get out of that stuff. And like fair you know he's a very rich famous actor why would he want to but you compare this and the action that goes on with his character here to like the likes of nobody which was also produced by 87 north where like bob odenkirk spent like a year in training to do the fight scenes and that allows them to like not have to constantly figure out how to hide the faces of the participants so you get to see him take the hits give the blows and it just puts you into the action far more effectively than this film does none of these people honestly uh, like have a real background in action beyond andrew koji 
um, Hiroyuki Sonata and uh, Joey King, actually, because of the princess. And, you know, Joey King never throws a punch. Hiroyuki Sonata, you know, has like that final set piece with the sword, but it's also cut to shit. And it's also like, you know, there's all the CGI nonsense going on all over the place and they're speed ramping and they're, it, their focus isn't on the action. Hiroyuki Sonata never throws a punch in the movie. I mean, not Hiroyuki Sonata, um, Andrew Koji, the star of Warrior, you know, based on <laughs> the writings of Bruce Lee, doesn't throw a punch in this movie at all. And yeah, just all of the action set pieces end up being either you know, the big CGI mess toward the end or like very cut up, you know, if they're trying to maintain like a sort of comic rhythm to them, which, you know, I've seen a lot of Hong Kong action films that do the same sort of thing and just do it better because guess what? The participants are actual stuntmen and action stars who can actually do the movement so they don't have to hide it, you know, behind editing and camera work. Well, I think one example of like, uh, having comedic elements incorporated into the fight that worked for me was like on that first uh, Brad Pitt, uh, Brian Tyree Henry sequence where they're like at the table and they're having to like try and like not make a scene. Uh, I, 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 I kind of appreciated that. If, if Fred had got it, something that like I criticized the Green Man for where I was just like, I cited to that, uh, that shootout with Common and John Wick 2 on the subway platform is like one where it was like, I kind of like it when like people are forced to like try and attack each other, but like not draw too much attention as opposed to just how over the top everything was in Gray Man. So I'm wondering whether, were there any particular sequences in uh, Bullet Train that like you, you really appreciated from a fight choreography perspective? That's the one fight scene that, or action scene that had like halfway decent choreography to me because it's so relatively simple. You can actually show Brian Tyree Henry and, and Brad Pitt doing the movements, but I mean, hell it's not even the best two character, a bunch of characters have to fight quietly, um, you know, in, in a confined space um, fight scene of this year, Vikram, this Indian movie, that's really not that great um, has a, far better set piece exactly like this where like there's a baby sleeping and they're trying to not make noise um it has the same sort of like it, clearly the choreography is like leaning more into that golden harvest like sammo hung comedic style of fight choreography and guess what we I, you know fucking this year we have everything everywhere all at once the dildo fight scene where like or the butt plug fight scene i should say which i'm very happy that i get to say that but like the buffalo fight scene <laughs> has the same sort of rhythm to it and it's just so much better hell even in a movie which i think you two did this movie um uh the king the king's man yes yeah yes. i was about man. to say yeah yeah where they're um in no man's land and like if they shoot each other then like everyone's just going to start firing at them so they all have to use their knives i have my own issues with that fight scene because it's cast all in darkness and everyone's wearing the same clothes so like you can't really tell what's going on <laughs> but the choreography well, is that's there, be the know? idea right yeah yeah but like you know it's always that at least there's a reason for why it's so hard to see so like i'm willing to kind of let it slide but not really but anyways my point here is that i've seen that sort of thing executed far 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 better not even in like prime era Hong Kong action, but like in the past year. So like it, it just came off very disappointing, man. All right. I mean, Fred, did, was there any, were there, were there any action scenes that like, especially worked for you though? I mean, cause, cause I, you, you were obviously um, got a lot more out of this movie than Daniel did. So I'm curious what actually did pop. Yeah. The funny thing about that silent fight is even though I enjoyed it as well, uh, it was kind of I'd already forgotten about it. it so. like they were be, well, it didn't seem like they were being all that quiet. 
uh, Brian Tyree Henry and Brad Pitt. Like even when they weren't. Oh, I thought you were talking about this. I thought you were talking about the silent thing in Kingsman. Okay, gotcha. gotcha. I mean, we we discussed that in the pod we did together. I actually really enjoyed yeah. that because it was a very unique way of actually doing trench fighting. Because normally you just have everybody running out of the trench and uh, going at each other. And here they actually had a very good reason for why they couldn't make any noise. Um, yeah, and for this one, I kept thinking, you know, they're not even trying to be all that quiet. Like they're still making a shit ton of noise. And that took me out of that scene a little bit. I, I like it when they do things like that, that are a bit more creative than just your cookie cutter hand-to-hand combat. I also really like the syringe scene where they are, are trying to stab each other with that syringe with uh, the boom slang venom. Um, like just kind of things like that. I, I get a kick out of that. And I'll also confess, uh, and this isn't much of a confession because I think everybody knows this, Daniel is much better versed in action movie lore than I am. I mean, he obviously has a passion for this genre. I'm not even super into the John Wick movies. I mean, I like them, but it seems like everybody's thinking of Keanu Reeves as the second coming of the Messiah now, and I'm just not quite up there. So that's not really a genre that I particularly identify with. I have a ton of experience in. Um, And it's kind of weird to say this because Bullet Train is obviously directed by David Leach, someone who's associated with the action genre. But I don't think I even came to Bullet Train primarily for the action. I came because I really liked Brad Pitt. I thought he was funny in the trailer, and I thought I would get a kick out of the humorous interactions, which I did. So it's kind of weird for me to say this because, again, it seems like that's what most people are here for. But the action to me was actually a secondary priority uh, in here. And that's why I didn't mind as much that there wasn't even as much action in it as I initially expected. I think that's something else that people pointed out that like, it really takes a while for the action to really get going. And then there are lo- some pretty long breaks in between fight scenes, which is kind of strange for a movie that kind of hyped itself up that way. I actually do agree that like, um, I think the emphasis here is more on the comedy and watching the characters interact with each other. And like just the, the overall style of the film over the action. It's the only explanation I can think of for why they constantly like cut from the fights, why you see snippets, why there's all the speed ramp. Like, you know, I feel like the emphasis like from the jump was not going to be on the action. It's still, I think the most disappointing element for me simply because even in the films where like I was disappointed by the overall filmmaking from Leech, the action did shine as much as I'm not a huge fan of Atomic Blonde, that stairwell fight, you know what I mean? Uh, the As much as I'm not a fan of Deadpool 2, you know, I actually did quite like those final set pieces, you know, with him going ham on people with the katana next to jo- James Brolin or Josh Brolin. I can't remember which one it is. Josh Brolin. Uh, um, Josh Brolin. Yeah, there you yeah. go. I, I do agree, though, to your credit that like, and to the film's credit, I should say, the action isn't necessarily the emphasis, the goal of the movie. We, we didn't really even talk that much about the end of the movie. I don't. I, I don't really have a lot of strong feelings about the whole, the whole white death thing. I mean, like, I mean, I, 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 th- I feel like there might be a version of this movie that like does away with that whole entire uh, backstory for that guy and like finds a way to streamline it a little more and it maybe makes things work a little more. But like, did did the Michael Shannon of it, Shannon of it all do much for you, Fred? Um, did, did that final sequence? I mean, I did kind of enjoy Joey King confronting him, though. It, it, at the same time, it felt it. And I, I do like Michael Shannon, but I, I don't know. It felt like one of those things where it's like you talk about the person that much in advance. They, it's hard to like actually, you know, live up to the character that's been talked about that much off screen. I, I don't I, I, it wasn't like bad for me, but I can't necessarily say it was like uh, anything that like redeemed the movie in that final act. 
but like you were already enjoying it more than I was up to that point. So I'm curious, like how that final sequence went, because it was also kind of a little different from the rest of the movie. And then all of a sudden, like, as opposed to everything just being confined to like these um, fight scenes on a train, like it gets a lot with, with the crash and everything. It's all of a sudden like a lot more kind of explosions and like bigger CGI action. Yeah, and that's something it has in common with a lot of Marvel movies, of course, and basically 90% of all the action movies that get released nowadays. Uh, yeah, and I wasn't a super big fan of that. I mean, th there's a fair amount of CGI in the entire movie, obviously, but I will still say overdoing it like that in the final act has become part of the course for a lot of the stuff that gets released nowadays. And I don't know, like, I, I like Michael Shannon as an actor. He's done a lot of good stuff that I've really enjoyed over the years, but... I don't know. I don't necessarily think he's the best choice for this kind of role. I think it would have been much cooler to have like a bona fide action star in that part and then maybe get a really cool fight scene at the end, as opposed to a massive CGI train crash that doesn't really uh, add a lot of unique stuff to this. Because again, mm -hmm. you had a good opportunity to have like a big fight set piece at the end because all the characters are kind of in the same uh, orbit now, the ones that are still alive, that is. Uh, so if you introduce White Death as somebody who actually has these uh, like stunt work chops and who can really make that final scene pop, then I think you really have something there. Uh, and instead, they just went for the obvious direction, which is to say throw a bunch of CGI at the screen uh, and blow shit up. And that's really a very unfortunate, not particularly creative way to wrap up this movie that, again, I actually enjoyed up until that point. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not even going to bother asking you if you like that ending, Daniel. I'm assuming you already know the answer it's to that. It's exhausting. Say, it's exhausting. Well, 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 you mentioned like the couple scenes that made like the couple, you had two lines that made you laugh. And like, I know I did chuckle at a few other things, but the only line that really stuck with me uh, when uh, as, as something that like actually made me laugh was uh, when like towards the end where like, you know, Brian Tyree Henry and Brad Pitt are forced to team up. And then he talks about like uh, losing a brother, but then but I gain, I have another brother now. And Brad Pitt says, "Really?" And he says, "Fuck no!" <laughs> like I, I, that 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 made me laugh. I don't know why. It was just kind of cutting the Brad Pitt character down a pay after he'd been like so corny with this positivity language the whole entire movie. I got so I got a kick out of that. Um, but beyond that, I can't really see anything else from the ending. Like completely stuck with me. It, and then it it has like um, it has the the Joey King character just kind of like totally go off the deep end in that last scene where she's driving the truck and I to not really any great end I mean like her dad's dead she should if, if that's really what she wanted I would have thought she would have been happy and just kind of booked it out of there um so I didn't really get what was going on with that but um any other final thoughts though on things we didn't touch on though that you wanted to Daniel yeah there's one thing that I guess should be talked about which is the casting um just the fact that this is a you know there's been a lot of talk about the whitewashing going on uh with this movie Oh, right. Well, so did you actually, I don't know if you got through the whole book, but I'm guessing you like at least heard what most of the characters were. Did they like actually, are, are most of the characters in the book Asian? They're, yeah, it's a Japanese book. They're all Japanese. Um, okay, now, I didn't know that. I didn't know if it was actually like written as like yeah, yeah. by a Japanese guy yeah, about these Japanese, white people yeah. on a train. No, no, no. 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 It's okay. a Japanese guy, oh, wow. Japanese okay. characters. They all have Japanese names. Even Ladybug isn't known just as Ladybug. That's his code name. But like he go, has a Japanese name. They're all Japanese. Um, gotcha. I, the, when I heard people talking about this issue more, it was they were talking more about the the couple Asian, the few Asian characters that were in the movie, like being marginalized. So I wasn't sure if it was just like in the book right, they were prominent, right, right. but everyone else yeah. was the same race. And okay. man, I actually there was a in a Facebook group. I mean, there was a discussion about this, and one girl like who was like, I think going a little a little extreme, where she was like, if it's a movie that if it's based on something that is Japanese with Japanese characters set in Japan, um, you should never change anything about that. I think was her 
thing. And like, I was like, that's a little I think it's a hard. Far. It's a hard. It's a hard tightrope to walk because, you know, maybe if this doesn't have Brad, Brad Pitt, it never gets made. Like, correct. So you gotta... But then you have the fact that you have like in the past couple of years, Crazy Rich Asian, Shang-Chi, like that's the attitude that studio executives have that like, well, you can't get something green and make it make have it make money if you don't have someone like Brad Pitt as the star. But the fact of the matter is, A, this movie it's not doing it's not really blowing up the box office with Brad Pitt as the star and B and Bad Bunny even and B it's that mode of thinking that kind of it's a self-fulfilling prophecy if you don't have someone like why isn't Andrew Koji the star of this movie why why not um what's his name Henry Golding like I mean we've there are Simu Liu like there are Asian actors who have proven box office like records like they have proven that they are able to hold down a movie like this um now that being said as much as i think it is important in this you know for like inclusivity in hollywood to have had like asian stars headlining this i think when people i think if people were complaining because it's a japanese novel and with japanese characters and that should have remained japanese because of that I'm not entirely sold by that argument because you have things like Ikaru, you have things like Magnificent, uh, the, the Magnificent Seven. You are able to transpose stories um, into different contexts and have it resonate with people in new and unique ways. And I think that there is something to be said about that. The industry, in industry terms, absolutely, we need more representation. It's silly to just, you know, write that off as a possibility. But in terms of uh, in terms of art, like I think that it is silly to sort of make every single work made overseas, for example, like the you can't have an adaptation process that changes details like that. That being said, also, I should note that this is a film that still sets everything in Japan. And there is a bit of exoticism going on here, you know, with the Japanese set with these white characters and i mean you have multiple jokes from uh brad pitt's character going like oh i thought they were they're usually so polite here which i think are supposed to play him as ignorant but don't really and being really confused about the toilet yeah for like it just yeah it just it just comes off as really cr- kind of crass and uh you know also considering that this is a studio this is a production company that has also made like a kind of white savior narrative thing with kate um from last year and also is currently um uh, Chad Stileski, the uh, other director from John Wick, he's set to direct um, the Ghost of Tsushima adaptation, which is a video, a Western video game all about like samurai and shit. So like that game has had its own questions about appropriation being brought up and they're adapting it. So I don't know, like I think that there is something to be said about the exoticism going on. There is something to be said about the resistance to representation by these studios, but I don't think that it's quite as black and white as people, you know, make it out to be in this particular case. Well, thank you for bringing that up because I meant to get to it and I just forgot to, but I think your points are very well taken on that issue. Um, Fred, any other final thoughts on bullet train before we wrap up? I know we put you in the position of being on the defensive a lot for this. So I want you to uh, bring up any other fun stuff you want to bring up too. I'm just very intrigued how it ends up performing at the box office because there aren't really a lot of uh, big releases over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I think I think it was number one this weekend. Too. Yeah, and apparently Top Gun Maverick is still the number three movie in the country. So, mm. and that movie seems to have really strong legs. So I don't know. I don't know if Bullet Train can necessarily uh, keep going like this for the next couple of weeks. But if there is absolutely no competition coming out, um, except maybe college football starting back up in a few weeks, um, I don't know. Maybe it can actually hold on for a bit. 
And again, this kind of feels like a bit of a an excuse to apply to a whole bunch of movies that aren't necessarily franchises. But I still appreciate it when we get movies during the summer that aren't tied to a particular IP that we've uh, gotten a whole bunch of movies for already. Um, obviously, we had Doctor Strange and Thor coming out. Uh, neither one of those movies were particularly great, in my opinion. Um, Jurassic World, I didn't even watch, but apparently it's supposed to be absolute garbage. Um, You're not wrong. And yes, it is. Yeah, so you get a whole bunch of franchise movies during the summer that don't have to put any effort in because people are probably going to go see them anyway because they're familiar with the characters already and they want to be in the loop on that. So I genuinely try to plead uh, for people to go see original content because, you know, it's important that these movies are still being made and get big releases. Um, and like I said, I actually enjoyed the movie, so I can wholeheartedly advocate for it. But uh, yeah. Obviously, the reviews haven't been especially great, and maybe that's why people are staying away. But I do think it is important to encourage people to try and give movies like that a shot, even though they might not end up liking them too much. Because, again, I would encourage people to go see it because of that. That's that's a, that's a that's a really good point. I always try and make that point whenever we do movies or podcasts about movies that are just um, you know something other than Marvel movies, like you said. So I appreciate you. Uh, you know, uh, putting that sentiment out there as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I don't really have any other final thoughts other than the fact that like, you know, I, I, I just wish this movie was funnier at the end of the day, but like, I think all these actors are good enough on their own and th there are enough inspired action sequences that like, I don't think anyone, I, I, I didn't have a bad time. I think it, it was a worthwhile trip to the movies. It's just like, I saw the potential, um, for a lot more there. Uh, Fred, before before you wrap up, because you're not sticking around for day shift, is there anything else you've been watching recently that you want to direct people to, whether it be stuff in this vein or just something else you're really enjoying at the moment? Yeah, the big thing I would recommend to people is Blackbird. People keep recommending this to me, and I keep forgetting what it's about every time they explain the plot. I, I just, I just uh... So I will explain it again, uh, also for the benefit of your audience. So it's a mini series on uh, Apple TV. Uh, it's six episodes, and it stars a uh, Taron Egerton as a drug dealer uh, who gets a 10-year prison sentence uh, and then gets an opportunity to have a sentence uh, commuted and get released if he goes into a high security facility to extract a confession from a suspected serial killer played by Paul Walter Hauser. And it's a really intense kind of cat and mouse game uh, that really showcases both of their acting abilities. I mean, Hauser has the more flashy role, obviously, because uh, he's this deranged possible serial killer. So he gets to make a lot out of that part. But I also really think it's one of Taron Egerton's best roles so far, because he really needs to take a deep dive into just the horrors of the crimes uh, that that man committed. And he has to try and uh, find a way to empathize with him in a way so he can actually get him to open up and talk to him about the crimes he might have committed. Um, so it's a really intense show. And the other reason why I keep recommending it is because, and it's really sad to say this because he passed away recently. Uh, it has one of the best Ray Liotta performances in years. Mm. Uh, really good in this show as Taron Egerton's father uh, really gets to go out on a high note. And you can see that he's really frail and uh, sick already. And he really channeled that into this performance of a guy who's also kind of on his last legs and uh, tries to make his peace with a son um, whom he let down pretty badly when he was growing up. Uh, so I can highly recommend that. Again, it's only six episodes, so you can watch it pretty quickly. Uh, and then the last thing I want to say is uh, Eyes Wide Shut is on Netflix right now. 
I just watched that two days ago for the first time. Mm. Uh, just in case you want to see a Tom Cruise performance from a time when he was still working with uh, serious directors uh, and really challenged himself as a performer, uh, aside from the physical stunt work. So I really enjoyed that one. I've actually seen a whole bunch of Stanley Kubrick movies this year. This is my fifth one so far. Uh, and it really is a very uh, impressive culmination to a very impressive career. So again, that's on Netflix now, if you haven't seen that one yet. Speaking of Kubrick, have you watched The Killing? No, that's one I haven't seen yet. You got to watch The Killing. The Killing's great. And I, I, it's something, my, my, fun, my funny story about that is that I watched it the night of the 2020 election. Mm. I had my own, this, this whole routine um, this whole routine planned out for that night where it's like, I, I was going to try and avoid all of the TV coverage of it. Cause I was just going to get me too stressed out. So I went <laughs> and like, I, I think I, I can't remember the order in which I did. I either worked out and then walked down the street to order a pizza or I got a, made a, like a massive like chunk of a pizza and then worked out. But while I worked out, I watched the killing rather than like look at Twitter at all. And like the killing was so good <laughs> that me being as stressed as I was about the results of the 2020 election, like I, I didn't really think all that much about it while I was watching the movie. Like it, it kept me engaged that much. And it was just surprising because like a lot of Kubrick's movies are like these really big three hour epics. And the killing is just like a very, very lean 90 minute heist movie that is just like really, really good. Um, so I, I'd be curious to see if you end up enjoying that once you get, get around to that, because um, I'd, I'd probably put it in my top three of his. Maybe I'll watch it on Election Day this year. Since that's coming up in November, <laughs> right, I'll make right. a note of it. It's a, yeah, another election with a very, 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 very big stakes. Well, uh, Fred, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Daniel, I mean, we're, we're talking about two action comedies, but if you have anything more specific you want to recommend in the vein of Bullet Train uh, that you like better than Bullet Train, which uh, you can go ahead and do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I've mentioned uh, a lot of, you know, we've mentioned a lot of like train movies like uh, Snowpiercer, Train to Busan, uh, Drama to Strain. Um, you know, I've mentioned uh, other works of the actors uh joey king's the princess from earlier this year and andrew koji's warrior which who knows whether that's seeing a season three under the new management of hbo max but you know fingers crossed but uh, i wanted to throw actually throughout three movies escape to athena 1979 directed by george p cosmatos fred at the beginning of this recording actually said that he loved the fact that this was a movie that you could tell all the actors were having fun and that is true. All these actors are enjoying themselves here. And uh, Escape to Athena has very much the same thing. It is set at a World War II prisoner of war camp in Greece, which, you know, you can tell everyone signed up for this movie because um, it's it's they're going to be in Greece for a couple months. Um, it stars Roger Moore. It's got David Niven, uh, Richard Roundtree, Sonny Bono, Elliot Gould. It's got an oh, like absolute stacked awesome. cast. Yeah, it is a absolutely insane cast. And it is kind of like a action sort of comedy where like, you know, the, the there's a, the, the prisoners decide to like try to take over the camp and Roger Moore's playing like a German officer that like also like was kind of impressed into the army. So he doesn't really care for the Nazi stuff. He's only here for like to evaluate treasure pretty much. And, you know, he forms a sort of relationship with some of the prisoners. And, you know, honestly, it's a very fun movie, almost entirely on the performances of the cast. And once it actually gets to the action, the action is actually really, really, really impressive in that kind of bombastic 70s way. Uh, Millionaire's Express is a Hong Kong action movie directed by Sammo Hung um, in which there's a small town with like, you know, all these different interests in the town, like, you know, criminals and bandits and, you know, corrupt officials. And I'm going to be real with you. 
I couldn't really follow the plot that much. And it's not really that good to begin with. But there is a train that comes through this town that Samuel Hung decides he's going to stop in order to get more commerce coming into the town. And it's just got some of the most absolutely insane action, even within the context of Hong Kong. Multiple multi-story drops onto just hard-ass ground, uh, hard-hitting fight scenes, one of which actually seems to be, to me, the inspiration for the fantastic fight scene at the end of Flashpoint in 2007. Um, It is just fucking bonkers. Um, And at one point, Samuel Hung needs to cool off a machine gun, so he pisses on it. So lots of fun to have in that movie. And also another Hong Kong movie uh, from the 80s, Royal Warriors, directed by David Chung, starring Michelle Yeoh, second film in the the Line of Duty series, um, you know, following uh, her debut starring role in Yes, Madam. Uh, She plays a cop who ends up teaming up with a Japanese cop. All these movies have cross-borders cop relationships going on. She ends up linking up with this Japanese cop in order to take down this, I think, Yakuza or Triad boss. Um, It's got really superb action. There's actually a big action set piece, again, set on transportation, set on a plane, and the Japanese cop is played by Hiroyuki Sonata, who plays uh, the uh, the father figure in um, this movie uh, that we're talking about. So, yeah, those are three that I really do highly recommend to people. Escape to Athena, you can find like on like Tubi and YouTube, I believe it's somebody put it up there. Uh, you can find Millionaire's Express on uh, Daily Motion of all things, and uh, Royal Warriors, I believe you can also find on Daily Motion. All right. Well, thank you for those recommendations, Daniel. Uh, Everyone stay tuned and we'll be back in a minute to talk about Day Shift. And we're back. And now Daniel and I are going to talk about Day Shift, which is uh, one of the newer releases from Netflix. It stars, it's it's directed by J.J. Perry. It stars uh, Jamie Foxx as Bud Jablonski, which I just think is actually absolutely hilarious that like, just like some black guy's last name is Jablonski because the way I, I actually know, so I actually went, uh, I had a law school classmate friend whose uh, last name was Jablonski and she was a white person from the Midwest. So it, huh. with that, with, with, with the heavy Midwestern accent, uh, shout out <laughs> Lauren. Uh, so, but it's just like, I, so I just always think of that name as like some kind of Polish white person, uh, you know, Midwestern name probably. Uh, so that, that I just got a real kick every time they called him Jablonski in this movie. I, um, I think they it must've been in the script Jablonski. And then Jamie Fox was cast. They're just like, yeah, let's just roll with it. His name is Jablonski. <laughs> yeah. I like that too. Um, but, uh, Bud is seemingly, uh, working as a pool man, but like, uh, what he actually does for a living is he kills vampires and, uh, in this world, and there is like a whole underworld of a union of uh, vampire hunters and they can sell like, you know, vampire teeth and, uh, kind of different parts of the vampires, I guess, for, you know, money. And that's, that's basically just his job, but we're led to kind of believe that this job that he kept from his uh, wife and daughter, uh, kind of tore their family apart a little bit. Cause he was never fully honest with them. He's trying to make a lot of money really quick to like be able to, you know, stop them from moving away. And um, in, in the process of kind of like re-engaging and uh, trying to get more back into the vampire union, he's, you know, assigned a handler played by Dave Franco and also is, you know, kind of consulting with help from another uh, vampire hunter named Big John played by Snoop Dogg. And, uh, you know, he has his own challenges as he tries to, you know, uh, make up for different consequences of certain other vampires he's killed and he's being chased by some other um, some other people in this vampire uh, world that I do not like some of the past decisions he has made in the course and scope of his employment. 
this is also produced by uh, 8711 Entertainment, which uh, we just talked about another movie produced by a lot of these same people. Uh, so, you know, if you, you're expecting just like a goofy vampire action comedy, you know, there's probably a little bit higher execution of the action than you might be expecting. Because I didn't really realize that going in, Daniel. I mean, Daniel, was you were very excited about this movie for a number of reasons. I'm not too clear on what most of them were. And then it became a little more apparent as I was watching this movie and I saw the cast list and I saw Scott Atkins. And, uh, but like, I mean, it seemed like, you know, there, there might've been a little bit more that was exciting you beyond that. But like, yeah, I've just been incredibly busy at work the last few months. And like every other, every third day I'm getting a message from Daniel's like, don't forget about day shift. Do not forget about day shift. You absolutely better do a podcast. I'm going to talk about day shift. So Daniel has been like, is hounding me about this movie for months. And I was like, I don't even, I literally did not know the plot of it like three days ago. I really didn't. I just, I just knew I'm like, all right, I know I'm doing that one. It's Netflix. It won't be too hard. I know I literally did not know what it's about until I turned it on. I, I maybe I heard That's something awesome. of vampire like a week ago, but like to your credit, you kept telling me about it, but you didn't give me too much of the plot. So I got the, I got to go in, um, you know, fairly blind, which is, which is nice, but we've already been talking a little bit offline tonight, Daniel, prior to even recording the podcast on bullet train, where you've made reference a couple of times. The fact that I don't think this is going to take us that long. I don't think it's going to take us that long. And for a movie where you've been, it seems like it's been in like your top five, most anticipated releases of the year, uh, for you to come out and just say like, ah, I don't know if we're going to take that long with it. I'm wondering, did this movie disappoint you or did you just kind of like just enjoy it uh, and just kind of disposably in that like this is perfectly fine, but like I wasn't disappointed, but I just don't have a lot to analyze here because it just it did what it wanted to do and left and there's just not that much to chew on. Uh, what was your kind of big takeaway from this movie that you were so excited for? Well, actually, both of those are kind of true. Mm -hmm. um, it is like a fun thing that kind of sets out to do what it does. And, you know, it's very simple in that respect, but also it wasn't just my top my top five most anticipated of the year. It was my most anticipated movie of the year. That is my, I have uh, been looking forward to this movie since it was announced, since it was announced as like the directorial debut back in like October of 20, uh, October 2020. Like I have been looking forward to this movie. Oh, so can you give, can you can you tell everyone who J.J. Perry is? Because I honestly am a little less familiar. J.J. Perry is a career stuntman, uh, stunt coordinator, second unit director, a uh, second unit being the production uh, unit that usually handles like the action of an act of an action movie. Um, so he got his start back in the 80s doing a lot of like stunts on like direct to video movies like Blood Fist 3, Rage and Honor, which I actually happened to watch like a week ago. Didn't even know that he's in it. Um, you know, PM entertainment stuff. Uh, and then he, you know, gradually got into like he's doing stunts on Batman and Robin uh, and then he's doing, you know, TV shows and then he starts coordinating and doing fight choreography on, you know, it starts off like stuff like Undisputed 2 and then ends up, you know, he's a stunt coordinator on like uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine. Um, and then he's doing actually his most recent thing that he's done is a movie that we talked about. He was the stunt coordinator on F9. Uh, he was, you know, a stunt performer on the Falcon Winter Soldier. Like the man has made his career in this world. And I'm always, always excited when I see a stunt man and someone who knows how to handle action, take the helm as a director, because that's usually a guarantee that you're going to get something that at least the action works uh, beyond just, you know, Leech and, you know, who is probably the one exception to this after Bullet Train. But you look at Leach, you look at Chad Stileski, you look at Vic Armstrong back in the 90s doing his thing with uh, Dolph Lundgren. And of course, you got everybody working in Hong Kong, you know, the, the Lau Kar Lungs, the Jackie Chan Samo Hungs. So 
as a stuntman for his whole career, like since the 80s, taking the reins of a film like this and also with that premise, you know, a man masquerades as a pool cleaner, but actually is a vampire hunter. And with the vampire hunter in question being played by uh, one of the greatest, I think, fair to say, one of the like last great movie stars today, Jamie Foxx. I was just super in like from the jump. We just had a whole discussion about action. So I'm kind of curious. Movies, same production company, same action, but like still like very different stories and very different settings. Like, did you come away from this a little more satisfied, though, with the action that you got in here? Oh, absolutely. I would say this might be it might be my favorite action of the year beyond besides like maybe like uh, RRR, you know, Mm -hmm. like I think that this is some absolutely tremendous choreography and action design going on. Uh, You know, you've got all these wonderful fight scenes with like, you know, the 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 enemy is going to be like a vampire. So when you when I go into an action movie, what I'm looking for is just kind of something that does something that brings this film in particular, like a personality to the action that is unique, that sets it apart from every other movie where dudes punch each other and such. Uh, and here, because the opponents are vampires, I think the uh, they had this thought of what if we got a bunch of contortionists? What if we got people who are super flexible to reflect the fact that these are vampires and they don't their bodies don't move in the same way as humans do? They're already dead. So they're able to pull off all these completely inhuman moves because you know they can bend that way apparently jj perry asked his stunt coordinator um whose name i don't have in front of me i apologize to him um does he know any contortionists and the guy was a wushu guy so like he actually knew a bunch of dudes from circa du soleil so he actually yeah the choreography in the fights uses a lot of like contortionism so you're getting these like takedowns and judo throws and jujitsu moves that i have absolutely never seen before Uh, the closest being like i think there's like a kind of contortionist fight in um uh, project power which was a netflix movie starring jamie fox from like a year ago or two years ago and it's just very very fluid very dynamic well shot you can tell that um jamie fox actually could pull off some of the moves here and when he couldn't guess what he's wearing like a mask or something so you can't really see him They've got a lot of great gunplay going on. You know, you've got uh, in that brilliant set piece in the middle, Scott Atkins teaming up with the guy from Reba, of all things, and Jamie Foxx in order to take out like a whole nest of vampires within a within a house. Uh, mm-hmm. And like, it's clear that this is just the previs guys just going absolutely bonkers with what they can pull off. You know, you get Scott Atkins with blades on his feet, a la Kiltro, which was a Chilean or Argentinian action movie. Um, you've got like little moves like, you know, uh, Scott Atkins is running low on ammo. So another guy stabs a vampire with a magazine and then he reloads his gun off of that magazine. You get all these fun mm-hmm. little moments peppered into the action that actually give the action like a rhythm so that it's not just stab, stab, kick, punch, end. Yeah, well, I, and as someone that went into this just not knowing any of this background at all, that was the main reason why, for why you were so excited for the movie. It, it it did catch me off guard in like a good way. Like there was also a, another moment comes to mind towards the at the sequence in the mall towards the end where it's like the first time you actually see like the Dave Franco character uh, really like get in on the fighting, and he just like straight up just like jumps on a guy and like uh, and out of nowhere, I was like, 
it, it was just like, oh, wow. Like they're like really like going at it with every little detail with every person that's jumping on someone else in the background. I, I was, I was genuinely very impressed in a way. I just, again, I, I really didn't know what it was about, but like, even once I realized it was a vampire hunting movie, I just assumed it was going to be like, you know, he'd stab some guys with stakes or like, you know, uh, you, you, and I mean, they make a lot of use out of this, like, uh, actually forgive me for not knowing my uh vampire details enough what does it have to be made of for them to like cut through like that wire does on a mul- multiple occasions is that I believe aluminum? it's silver i believe silver. it's silver okay. oh, yeah, yeah silver. Duh, duh. I know that. but yeah so like um I, I just thought it was gonna be a bunch of like stabbing them as silver and wooden stakes and that was gonna be it like i didn't really i didn't have expectations of anything more than that and i was like yeah I probably still would have found some 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 stuff to appreciate within that but like they really did go above and beyond for this action and like just like a Netflix putting like a hundred million dollars on this thing, which is like, you know, uh, kudos to them for doing that. And I think we're probably in agreement on the quality of the action, but it seems like you were maybe conflicted about other parts of the movie. So was there, uh, was there something else you were hoping to get out of this movie storytelling wise that maybe you didn't get? Oh yeah. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's where the movie is a, a bit of a letdown for me. So here's the thing. I don't expect like a great dynamic story with like really well-rounded deep characters in an action movie about vampire hunting i mean shit have you seen blade you know what i mean like there's not much going on in blade other than i don't think i've ever seen blade wow you need to fucking fix that but i will get into that in a moment but like for a movie like this it doesn't really require much maybe an hour maybe like 90 minutes you get a little bit of sprinkling of vampire lore, you know, a little bit of that buddy comedy stuff. As you said, Jamie Foxx is teamed up with James Franco, who is, I mean, Dave Franco, the good one, who is uh, this like suit from the union who's kind of there to give him a fail um, on this like last chance to join the union. And he's this bookish guy, Bud's the, the blue collar worker. And, you know, you're supposed to kind of ride with them in this sort of like buddy cop dynamic. And this is like, just make it kind of fun, you know, just zip along. Don't think too hard between the action set pieces. Easy enough, right? I mean, I this guy got his start in this kind of straight to video movies. Uh, like I said, uh, Bound in Honor or whatever. Uh, he did like, he actually did a PM entertainment movie called Cyber Tracker, which is seems like, you know, starring Don Wilson, which seems like exactly the kind of thing that you should be shooting for. Keep it simple, keep it dumb, but zip along from a set piece to set piece this movie does not do that this movie does not do that they spend so much time on like you know the the family dominant the family drama like jamie fox's wife is gonna leave and take the kid and there's so many scenes with me her you know megan good who is good but you know like a good actress but the material they're working with is like no human being really talks to people like this and it just drags on the buddy comedy, it's not funny. Dave Franco, not funny. I like Dave um, Franco. I'm just, it's a pro Dave Franco podcast. I like Dave we Franco, but I think that like here, it just doesn't work. And we can get into that a little bit. But um, I, I think there's generally like the storytelling, it falls really, really flat. And like the, even the lore building, there's so much packed in to like that. And, but the way that, uh, Instead of like John Wick, where it kind of implies this sort of hidden underworld and you get bits and pieces and you're like, oh, wow, that's interesting. But you only need to know about it as it comes because these characters are already immersed in the world. There's so many scenes where it's just characters rattling off the different vampire species and it goes on for five minutes and you're just like, 
I don't care. I just do not care. And it's just dragging everything to a halt. Uh, it's the kind of thing that you'd kind of expect for somebody who, while he has a technical know-how for how to work a camera, how to direct a fight scene, how to, how, how to keep the rhythm of a film kind of going scene within a scene, you know, he just doesn't know how to tell a story quite yet. This is his first outing as an actual storyteller beyond like second unit directing. So, yeah, I think the thing that would kind of held it back for me the most was probably, well, you said that they probably spent a little bit too much time on the, the Megan Good and the daughter. It's like, that feels like something you've seen before. A dad has to do something to like keep his kids or whatever. And uh, we, we spent a lot of time establishing that when like that, a lot of that could have been accomplished and, you know, a lot in like a few, like a, a few lines of dialogue probably. And, yeah. and, and whereas like they, they, even though that they do spend a good amount of time with some of this other war building and um, there's this uh, older, more powerful uh, vampire named Audrey that, you know, wants to, uh, that is, that is after him when in, in response to the killing of one of the vampires earlier in the movie. And there's just a lot going on there. And it ties in also with his next door neighbor who uh, ends up being, her name is Heather uh, it turns out she's like Audrey's familiar and uh, was trying to get him to like, play, was going to play some role in like, you know, helping her get, get at him. But it's like, there's like an obvious scene that like, is just missing in the movie where it just like implies to where, where it, the movie just implies that like, they had like already known each other better than they did. Um, uh, Bud and Aubrey and, or no, excuse me, Bud and Heather. And where it's like when he actually confronts her after Audrey is like tracked down his family, it's like he's done the calculus that like for some reason, like Heather must have been responsible for how they were able to get to his family. And I and I, I was confused and I went, went back and I was like, did I miss a scene? Like, because I actually watched this in, across two. I watched this last night and I, 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 I didn't fall asleep, but like I because of it or anything but like i i'd fallen asleep on my couch and then i got i then i moved to my bed and i started watching it in bed but like i it was like three o'clock in the morning i was like i did i can't stay up too late watching this it wasn't it wasn't the fault of the movie the movie was entertaining but like i was like did i like start to fall asleep and miss a scene and i like i went back and i watched i'm like no there's really only two scenes the first one where he goes in her apartment after he helps her carry some stuff in and then when he confronts her it's like and she's like oh aubrey made me get close to you and i was like why they're not close and it was like this this character that's all of a sudden like a very big part of the movie at the end with him and Dave Franco. And it's like it seemed like it just kind of lost the thread on what it was doing in that corner of the movie when it was trying to like you said do a lot of war building with these vampires, but also like, you know, have Bud interact with this other one that just happened to be a next door neighbor. It just it, it was a little too all over the place for me in, in regards to like trying to follow what was going on there. In addition to everything that was going on with the Dave Franco character, like it just it didn't really balance it all that well for me, even with all the other stuff it had going for it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, again, a movie like this, for it is like a over two hour movie, I think. And it absolutely should not be. It's, 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 a it's, it's 114 minutes, so not quite, but it's almost there. Yeah, it, it, that's way too fucking long for this move kind of movie. I'm sorry. Like, it should be 90 minutes at most. Um, you should have kept this really, really simple. You know, he goes to his wife. She says, you need $10,000 or we're moving. Like, no human being acts like that. But as long as you just keep it there, fine. When you get to all the vampire lore, you should keep that, you know, when you know after they clear out this nest of vampires you know dave franco says like hold on these are all these different species that wouldn't normally interact with each other and i'm like all right if you had just had him say that and had not had him rattle off all the species and their differences for five minutes 
I would have still bought into it. I would have been like, oh, yeah, he knows his stuff and the vampires are acting weird. That's fine by me. Well, the, the other thing I was going to say about that is they, they spend a lot of time talking about all those different types of vampires in the world. But I still don't really understand, like, I mean, I, I don't know if, again, you're saying that this movie should just be 90 minutes and I don't totally disagree. But I'm wondering if the world building could have been better in so much as, like, understanding how vampires fit into this world at all like it's kind of implied that like regular civilians don't really even know about them because his wife doesn't really believe that he's a vampire hunter until she sees that other person with things in the room but it but it, but at the same time it's like okay so like the people that do know that vampires are a thing to the extent they're i mean even just within this union but even to the extent other people do know about vampires besides that like is their attitude just like all vampires must die so like because he's he's even just like going into the houses of like old ass vampire lady trying to get and just killing her because like he you know has a lead on there possibly being a vampire there even though we're not really led to, i guess it's implied that like vampires will kill humans i guess to suck their blood so it's like to that to that point you want to get rid of them but like he's just like i, I thought there was gonna be a second where he's just gonna like they treat it like a zombie movie like where he's gonna kill dave franco as soon as like he sees he's a zombie but it's like no, like he's worth keeping around because I know he's okay. I know he was okay from when he was a human. So I just feel like- <laughs> which then inspires questions of like, wait, so can all vampires control their urges? And if so, then why is there a whole business about killing these sentient it, beings that are that... able to look? Here's the thing: this is where there are two routes you can go. You can take a very serious and meaningful and deep look at the morality of these people's actions and you know, the society that forms around the killing of other beings and, you know, ex really truly dive into all that. Or you can just make the shit 90 minutes and just say, don't think that hard about it. There are two yeah, routes you but can they, go. But they kind of, and they don't really, and they kind of fall in the middle. Yeah, they don't do either. They spend so much time building up the lore, but then also not enough time really exploring the capabilities and like the way that they built the world is so clumsy, uh, you know, through all this exposition, through all these kind of very flat characters, uh, through this kind of like for all the fluff going on here, it also feels kind of rushed when it comes to getting to that conclusion. So, yeah, like the, the, the storytelling is absolutely a mess uh, in terms of the emotional relationship between the characters that and I, I, I should we should harp on the comedy a little bit. It is not a funny movie. Mm. It is not a funny movie. I will say, I'm sorry, we talked I talked up the action. But the other thing that keeps me from I did still like this movie. But the two th reasons why are the action and Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx really does prove himself to be like an absolute superhuman talent in film. Because it's like, interesting. He you made that comment earlier about one of the few movie stars left. And then I went and looked at his IMDb and he or his filmography. He hasn't really had that many like he opens a movie as the star successful movies in the last 15 years. Mm, that's what I, what I mean to say by superstar quality. I mean, no, it's, I, I agree. It's a good performance, but like he, he it's like this is him like kind of reestablishing that if nothing else i would say yeah and i would say that like in terms of jamie i know that he hasn't like had like a role like you know tom cruise in top gun maverick for a minute but he is an actor i think who the moment he steps on screen he kind of commands like no matter what movie he's in he does have a presence that kind of makes him the star of whatever even when he's in like a supporting role like in like i don't know um what's it called uh what was that movie with Charlie Day where like they're going to kill each other's horrible bosses. bosses, horrible bosses. Like the moment he steps into that movie, he's the star of that movie for me. Like he just has that quality. And here he is selling some really dire material just on 
sheer charisma. Like, I, I can't remember any jokes in this movie, but I remember just loving any moment that he's on screen. He's just so goddamn charming. I said that. I lied. There's one joke that to this, I will probably be like one of my favorite lines of the year. Um, after he kills a bunch of vampires with Dave Franco, he tells Dave Franco like, hey, you need to rub this. You have to take a shower right after you kill vampires. Rub this on your skin to get the scent off because the vampires put like a mark on you that like, you know, attracts other vampires. So you got to rub this really stank smelling thing on you. And then he tells him, but just don't get it in your eyes. Don't let it get in your ass. And Dave Franco's like, what happens if it gets in your ass? And he's like, oh, well, it can't kill you, but Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it's the one moment in the movie where I actually just let out a fucking belly laugh. Um, I should say also that, you know, like I said, this movie conjures up for me, like the closest comparison. People will probably be comparing it to like, I don't know, like Blade or something. But honestly, to me, the closest comparison, even though it's a hundred million dollar movie, is PM Entertainment. Um, I'm sure that you're not aware of this company. Not many people are. Mm. PM Entertainment was a uh, production company that specialized in like shoestring direct-to-video movies back in the early 90s back when like that wasn't a real industry this is the industry that jj perry came up on and i feel like there's a lot of stylistic influence in even the action of this movie uh and just everything else like the hue like this movie has some really oversaturated lurid colors like i'm sure that any cinematographer friend that I have is going to be watching this movie going like, why the fuck is this so oversaturated? It looks like a, like a novice Instagram post, you know what I mean? But um, I admittedly, I do quite like the look of the movie, even though I recognize that it's a little too overblown when it comes to the saturation. Um, I'm going to be real with you. I kept thinking of prey while watching this and thinking how much more personality was in the visual language of this movie than in prey. Like LA feels like, you know, this lurid, hot, sunny environment versus like kind of the, like the, the valley specifically the, too. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but anyways, PM entertainment, they specialized in these sort of like, even though they were low budget, like, they would pull off some like really crazy stunt work, like closing off streets and highways. I don't know how they were able to do it. Blowing up cars and shit. Like, you know, you have an LA river chase in this movie. Like how much more nineties do you get? You know what I mean? Those movies had a certain sensibility that I think this does somewhat key into. And I do think that if there was less of an emphasis on the sort of character beats on the story elements and like just more emphasis on the action, I think it could have kind of landed that in that sweet spot of like dumb fun the entire way through, just running entirely on adrenaline and momentum. Um, but it's just too spaced out for me to really fully get into it like I wanted to. Yeah, I hadn't even really thought to make too many points about the comedy. Like, I, I think I just, yeah, I, I can't even think of that many moments that really like made me laugh all that much either necessarily. And like when it when it came up that I had the idea to just kind of like do this now based on when it got released and do it with the bullet train pot I, I was thinking about the two movies because like they're both action they're both action comedies to the extent they're like they're both trying to be comedies uh neither of them made me laugh all that much but I think I just came into bullet train with like such higher expectations because I didn't know anything about day shift like mm -hmm. I left day shift, day shift just feeling more satisfied though I wouldn't necessarily say there's any one thing I'd say it does like that much better it sounds like you like the action better than in bullet train I I, it, I, I'm not. A, I, I don't know action well enough to really like explicitly oh, say much better. All the all the all the rigging work, man. Like every single moment, every single fight in this movie has like at least a couple moments where okay, like well, so somebody the, the, gets the, launched. The, the nest sequence. 
the nest sequence is like definitely better than anything in bullet train for sure. That's going to stick with me more than any one action sequence in bullet train for sure. Mm. Um, so I, I, I got to give it that, but other than that, like, it's just, yeah, it's like, I don't know. Like I I'm trying to think of like other action comedies that come out in recent years. And like, what's a, what's an example of one that made me laugh out loud a lot throughout. I, I remember laughing a lot more at Keanu than I did at like either of these two movies, but like, Oh yeah. Keanu of, is a funny ass movie. I mean, that, I, hell. Like, and that's, that's less of an action movie than these two, even if it is kind of like a, a, a little bit of an action movie in, in, um, in operation, but like, well, I, I got one for you that like definitely I kept thinking about while watching the, mm-hmm. you know, Dave Franco again, like Dave Franco, I like as an actor, but the material that he has, his character is just a straight laced dweeb. And like, mm-hmm. That's all the humor. Like he pisses himself at every fight scene. <laughs> Actually, that part I did find kind of funny. But um, you know, like like, but the jokes, things that he's saying, like, oh yeah, he's super into Twilight. He likes cats. Like it's very meat-headed sort of like first pass at a screenplay. This is actually this writer wrote John Wick three. Um, which is the one that people point to as the weakest of the trilogy. Personally, really? I think I like it's it the best. Yeah, I, I like it the best also, but on the strength of mostly the action uh, I, and this guy actually. Oh, yeah. He also wrote Army of Thieves, Army of the Dead. So, you know, he is kind of a, I feel like this guy is probably kind of no disrespect, Shea Hatton, but it's probably kind of like, you know, I don't know. I'm looking at him. He doesn't really look like that much of a meathead. But anyways, but anyways, the comedy just it's not really all there for me, even in the interaction between those two. And I love a buddy cop movie, a buddy comedy movie. And when you talk about buddy comedy, action comedies um, set in L.A., nice guys, nice guys exists. Like I kept on thinking about that movie, watching this and how much more fleshed out and how much better the rapport between the two characters, uh, the two actors in that film were than here. Yeah, that, I guess I guess I mean, yeah, I guess I don't, I don't I guess I just don't even really think about that as an action movie in the same way I would even. I, 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 I said the same, but then I rewatched it. There's actually a decent amount of action in that movie. That's really fully like there's a lot of shootouts. I need such. I need that's one. That's one I definitely should rewatch. And it's on Netflix right. now. So um, I will movie. say I'm sorry. It sounds like I'm going really ham on this movie again. I did quite like it, but there's just a lot of flaws here. The actual, expectations. It's understandable. Yeah, 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 exactly. The actual villain. Right. Mm. I forgot her name. Audrey. Um, is that her name? Yeah, I, I, I didn't, I didn't remember it either until we started recording, and I went back up. Audrey San Fernando, yeah, by Car, played by Carla Souza. It just, she, I don't even know what her goal was. She wanted to take over like the vampire underworld and do something with it, but, but also avenge her daughter's death. I really, I, I could but also not, avenge her daughter's if gun, death. If you put a gun in my head, I could not explain the underworld. But then why? Oh, and then she kidnaps the daughter and the the wife to lure him in. But why exactly? Because she just wants to kill them. There's no like ritual going on or anything like that. Like she's just gonna. Her whole thing was like, I'm gonna turn your daughter and make your make her. Right. She could. She could have killed them all in that house. Yeah. So what was the fucking point? Like that. You know, the script is just really motherfucking weak, and the fact that it's so goddamn long means that it draws attention to the fact that none of this is really connecting or making any sense. You know, another thought that I had because I mean, again, like you said, they could have made this very short and cut out a lot of this other vampire lore stuff and whatnot. And, but the, the thing is they go all in on that and they go, in, go all in on making it clear that these vampires have the same weaknesses and they go by the same rules that just about every other vampire you've ever read about in culture does. Like, how does she even get into their house? Don't they have to be invited in a house? I kind of, I kind of wish I had seen that. Like, yeah, there's no, there's no scene where like they talk about like how exactly like the rules are like, I guess they can walk into houses in this one, but like, it's one of those things like you over explain so many other things that when this disruptancy happens, 
we're all like, wait, so they can walk into houses now? Like, I mean, it, it's like one again, of the four things everyone knows about vampires. Like, you know, yeah, it, it gotta be night, sucks blood, can't eat garlic, has to be invited in. Like, you know, it doesn't <laughs> age five things. Those are the five things, you know? Yeah. So like, again, like if you just made this dumb fun, run on momentum, whatever, fine. But you spent so much time on the lore. And so it's going to be easier for people to kind of nitpick these sorts of things and just be like, wait, so that doesn't track. And also I will say that like, you know, no disrespect to Carla. She's not working with a lot, but like, yes, I just was, I was not intimidated by this villain, uh, which actually, yeah, honestly goes into the action. Like toward the, they kind of blow their load in the middle of the movie with that house fight scene with Scott Atkins and uh, the, uh, the car chase, you know, with like all these motorcycles exploding in this and that. Um, the final set piece, it's, it is cool. Like there is a lot of cool choreography going on. Like, you know, Dave Franco becomes like a vampire and like, he's able to pull off these cool contortionist movies. There's a lot of rigging going on. And again, every single time in these fights where somebody gets blown, like by a shotgun, like 10 feet into the air, it's like, great. Like they, it really punctuates the fights in a way that like, it's both comedic in a way that works far better than the actual jokes. And also just, it acts like an exclamation point to the rhythm of the fight scene. Like there's a language going on here. There's a conversation being had that I found like really, really engaging. But then you get to that final set piece and like, yeah, there's the big thing in the mall, but then it ends on like a fight scene between Dave Franco, that random vampire that he lived next door to that only became a good person. Like that we only knew was a vampire, like a scene before. And like the henchman lackey, who like is this middle-aged white dude who I, I don't know. For all I know, that is a career stuntman. For all I know, that's JJ Perry himself. How am I supposed to know? Um, I don't know what it looks like. And like you get that fighting between the three of them, and it's like we don't really have that much of an investment in any of these guys. And then the final fight scene is, you know, Jamie Foxx versus uh Carla Souza. And like, you know, like it's just her speeding around like Morbius, throwing him around. It's not an actual like fight with choreography and such, it's taking place on a flat. <laughs> like concrete floor uh like considering the ingenuity that we saw on display for the entire rest of the movie to end that way seems like a huge missed opportunity uh a lot of action movies do end up doing this like the raid for example ends with a final fight between two guys and and uh the main two guys and uh mad dog just in an empty room with no like props or anything around them for them to use i don't know why action movies do this like it's a weird note to end on a, such an action heavy movie with such creative choreography. Yeah. And the, the, the actual like decapitation, the last decapitation that does happen there. Um, I don't know. Is it, you, you see it coming a mile of fucking away. I don't even necessarily want to say I did that, but it almost just feel it, it, it's just another example of it kind of like doing something anticlimactic, but like at the same time, it feels a little bit like a cheat also um mm. in a way where just like having a, a more well choreographed fight scene wouldn't it's just like it, it, it's like a surprise to us but it feels like it shouldn't be a surprise to us it's like i don't think the geography of that you, you kind of said it's just like a flat concrete whatever i don't think the geography of that room is such that like it would have made sense it, it would have made sense it, that it made sense to me in the moment that like he would have had that set up there you know what i mean mm. like that he would have either been able to do it in that moment without anyone noticing him or that if he if he had done it well beforehand somehow in advance of that moment that like could we be so sure he hadn't so people hadn't already run past that point um it's just like a i know i know it sounds kind of nitpicky but it's kind of i don't know it just it felt like a little bit of a 
Deus Ex Machina shortcut. Yeah, whatever it feels a little. It. it feels a little cheap considering the work that went to all the other set pieces. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Is there anything else you want to touch on with it? I mean, I know you said it, you didn't think it'd take long, but I, I don't really have a ton else to add myself. Uh, well, actually, in, in terms of the world building, as much as down as I am on like how they explored the lore and the execution of it, I think toward the beginning, uh, when he first like walks into the union with Snoop Dogg, um, there's actually a lot of stuff there that I like. It feels like a cheesy sort of B, like B movie, like a maybe like even like a John Carpenter esque. I know some people might consider that sacrilege, but you know, like where he's there's like a tracking shot through like the vampire union office and like they've gone international and there's all these busts going on and plot there's these paintings of famous people all over the walls implying that they're vampire hunters including abraham lincoln and frederick douglas um, which is a nice little fun bit of world building that happens completely in the background but like adds a flavor to this whole endeavor that you know it, it, it's communicated completely silently doesn't take too much screen time but it speaks volumes. Uh, and I wish that the film had more of that style of lore and world building versus, um, you know, what we get through the rest of the movie. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I, I actually did kind of have a similar thought when they went into that. I was like, you know, it, it did remind me a little bit of the John Wick films, how the Continental has its own, like, you could see them, like, if doing a whole spinoff series about what it's like to work there. Just like there have been other spinoff series and other things about. And you like, know there is, right? By the way, you do know that they are doing a spinoff series called The Continental on Stars. I, I I remember getting talked about at some point. I didn't. I I I just didn't remember it ever actually like coming close to fruition. I, oh yeah, the fight um, court. One of the fight coordinators on this film, Michael Lair, he's actually a fight coordinator on that one. So has that already aired a season? And I just didn't no no, it? no no no. It's in oh, post. Oh. It's in post now. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah. Well, I mean, that made sense that they could do that when it happened. And there's like other stuff where other different kind of bigger tentpole shows around there that like do did spin off like you know like a like a side part of a of a, a behind the scenes look at this one part of their show like this. And like, I, I did not necessarily that I'd, I'd watch a show about that, but I would have been happy to learn a lot more about that. Even if it meant we got a longer movie than you or I think this one needed to be, it, it, it just, it made that stuff was kind of interesting to me. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, if there's nothing else, Daniel, I mean, you kind of made it indicated earlier, you had two separate uh, sets of recommendations you wanted to do. Did you have other different kind of movies you wanted to recommend that like, you know, are more in this genre than what we saw in bullet train? Yeah, um, I will say I haven't seen too much PM Entertainment stuff. I've only seen four of their movies, all starring the great British, uh, like kind of the pre-Scott Atkins, uh, Gary Daniels. Um, most recently, I saw Recoil, which, you know, is like a, eh, a little too much drama for my taste. But like the action that's there is really fun. Chad Stileski is actually in the cast of this movie. And um, huh. and uh, yeah, it's got like a like a bonkers like L.A like chase scene with explosions going off. I'm not sure how they pulled it off with that budget that they had. Um, beyond that, I, I already spoke about um, the nice guys, but in that same vein, you've got Debt Collector, The Debt Collector, which is on Netflix. Um, that is starring Scott Atkins and uh, Louis Mandalore as like uh, Scott Atkins. Actually, it has very much the same dynamic as this one. Scott Atkins is going into the uh, business of debt collection for this loan shark. Um, the first day he shows up to work in a suit, you know, just like uh, uh, Franco in this one. Um, and it's just them two going from spot to spot, you know, collecting on debts. Uh, they have such an amazing rapport in that movie. It is very much the version of this movie that works, like, you know, barely over 90 minutes. Really funny comedy, really funny character interactions. Um, 
I really do love that. I think it's one of the best action movies of the past decade. And of course, I mean, for all of you motherfuckers who have not seen Blade, you gotta get yeah. to Blade, man. That has one of the best like superhero introductions. Like, I don't know. Marvel has not come close to topping it, even with like their good stuff. Like nothing comes close to that first reveal of Blade in that first movie. I cannot believe you haven't gotten to that yet, son. No, I just never really... No one's ever really get, made it like a strong like push to get me to watch it. Oh yeah, that is like one of that is like the, the like one of the best action movies of the '90s in a way. Like honestly, in a way, it precedes. Um, it's kind of like the Matrix before the Matrix and some of its action choreography, like bringing over that Hong Kong wushu style to uh, American cinema. Um, it is, I think, yeah, I think it's safe to say the best superhero action that you've ever really? seen. Um, yeah, like uh, like you know in the in the because like you know. Wesley Snipes was a fucking trained martial artist. So he's doing a lot of the work there. And it's, you know, a lot of wire foo, which isn't my huge bag, but like clever choreography and like it's got a real self-possessed style to it. I, it is, yeah, I need to rewatch it myself because I feel like I gave it like a three and a half or a four at the time. But like, I think it probably rises way above that. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah I guess cannot I, recommend it. No one ever really like give, give me like a huge push to watch the Blade before. And I just, um, uh to watch blade before and i just oh yeah i i put it i put it above guillermo del toro's which everyone says is the best but i think he relies too heavily on right. cg and um, shit, so i'll just tell people watch the nice guys i didn't know it was on uh, netflix till daniel just told me so if you've never watched the nice guys you don't really have an excuse now because just about everyone has netflix so i swear to god i did the, a double bill a couple weeks ago of the nice guys and debt collector and they play very well together so right. highly uh, recommend daniel where can people find your letterbox if people want to do that Oh, felonious funk, baby. And again, I want to say this is still a very engaging movie. If you are here for the action, you will not be disappointed. I just wish that the storytelling around it was just a little. Yeah, you're not going to be bored. You know, I mean, we were kind of hard on it, but like it's I mean, I think it's uh, um, I, I just think it, it, it you're going to you're not going to not be entertained. Uh, so and it's you don't you know, as opposed to bullet train where like, I mean, I, I support going to the theaters whenever you can, but it's a bigger ask to get someone to go to a theater. Like it's, this is it's, for the amount of effort you have to put in to watch this movie. It's totally worth it. I would say for sure. Um, as usual, I'm Josh Jernavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd. Our uh, podcast Twitter is at Rewind Movie Pod. Podcast email is the Rewind Movie Pod at gmail.com. Uh, coming up next on the podcast, I'm uh, not really sure because uh, August is a funny month. Uh, I went through it with Daniel and Fred earlier tonight. There's going to be something coming. I just don't exactly know what's going to be next in our here. I mean, I, I did not know what Beast was and up until like, you know, uh, like two, two, two hours ago. So uh, I, I th that looks like and you've might, got I, you've got spin me round the Jeff Baina movie. You got 3000 years of longing new George Miller. Like you still got some stuff. Yeah, you still yeah, invitation sure to that. Yeah, I don't know. Is I don't know. If Three thousand years along and get a wide release. I'll of course watch it if it's George Miller. I just didn't know if it was. Yeah, it's getting a wide. I think, okay. and also Breaking, the uh, John Boyega movie, bank robbing movie that's going to Netflix. I think. Ooh, yeah, we. I, I think we might have talked about that last week. So yeah, mm. funny stuff. I just don't know the order of any of it. So everyone, stay tuned for that. Thanks again to Daniel and Fred for joining me, and we will see you next time.